0: All right, so we're gonna be in Judges 12 this week. So if you have a Bible, if you can turn there. Judges chapter 12, and we'll be starting off in verse one. And I'm just gonna read down from there to verse seven. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon, and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites, and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand, and crossed over against the Ammonites. And the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim, because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to them, Are you an Ephraimite? And when he said, no, they said to him, then say Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. And then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. So this text is the conclusion that we have of uh, Jephthah's story in Judges. And it really brings to mind a theme that we've been seeing so far in Judges. And that theme is broken unity that you have with the people of Israel. And this broken unity comes out so far in Judges in a bunch of different ways in a bunch of different places. But there's, there's no time like this where, it, where Israel is essentially fighting itself for seemingly no good reason. And you you kind of see this uh, because so far the Ammonites have been defeated by Jephthah. You remember his story, he's cast out by his people, scorned, he grows up in Tob, leads this small army of uh, essentially mercenaries that exact peace and that skill set acquires him favor with the Gileadites who bring him back on to kick the Ammonites out of their, their towns. And so he goes up against the Ammonites, he fights them, he has this amazing military victory and rather than having peace or celebration after his victory, for Jephthah, he has first that tragic sacrifice with his daughter, which we took, took a leg at uh, a few weeks ago. And then this week, he has this now conflict with Ephraim. And so for Jephthah, even though he's defeated the enemy, it seems that there is no rest really in Israel. There's this kind of continuous spirit of uh, brokenness and disunity, and it's kind of breaking loose in, in all different kinds of places. And so we'll see that as we move through the text together. The first thing I want you to notice is the, uh, the questionable nature of the, uh, of the complaint with Ephraim. So you'll notice in verse uh, 2, where, or sorry, in verse 1, when uh, Ephraim talks to Jephthah, which means the tribe leaders of Ephraim, they say, why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us? And then Jephthah counters by saying, I did call you. I and my people had a great dispute. And when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. That's in verse 2. And so the author of Judges doesn't resolve this tension for us. You'll notice that there's no further commentary on who's right or who's wrong. Um, there was enough uh, history that we had when Jephthah was disputing with the Ammonite leader to t- tell us whether Jephthah was right or the Ammonite leader was right, right? We could, we could go look in the annals of history and we could see Jephthah told that history accurately the Ammonite leader was wrong. But in this case, when, with Jephthah and Ephraim, these events are very closely following one another and they're not recorded one way or the other how it actually went down. We're told, for example, when he goes to fight the people of, um, of Ammon, the Ammonites, we're told that he goes up against them and he, he rallies the troops of Israel and then he strikes them and he defeats them. But we're not told who he asks or how it goes down or who does or doesn't respond to him. And so we have to ask the question, why would the author of Judges, the historian, include this series of verses for us in the text? Why would they, why would he bother giving us this problem, not telling us who's in the right or who's in the wrong, and then giving us this kind of tragic outplaying of events? Why does he bother recording it? And something you'll, to to really make sense of that, you have to take a back step and look at the whole picture of Judges, because if you look early on in Judges, you kind of have this, uh, these short stories of Judges like Othniel and Ehud and uh, and Deborah and Barak, and they're kind of, they're kind of told in a favorable light. There's very little Uh, negative picture uh, or negative portrayal of them. And then as you kind of move throughout the era of the judges, as the people are in the nation longer, as the people are among the foreign people longer, and as they're allowed to essentially uh, diversify in their interests, you notice they become more tribal, they become more petty, and they become more like the people around them. And that disintegration takes place in in the time of Gideon where uh, you can even tell uh, in, for example, Gideon, uh, when Gideon's judge in Judges chapter 8, in chapter 8 verses 1 through 3, Ephraim and Gideon have this same kind of squaring off where Ephraim says, why did you not call us to arms or why did you not call us sooner? You know, why did you not essentially honor us by sending us into battle ahead of time? And Gideon at that time resolves diplomatically by saying, you know, what do I have against you? Or what, what honor do I have over you? And essentially dismisses them that way. Well, for Jephthah, you know, this is a judge who follows not Gideon, but Abimelech. And Abimelech's way to deal with problems is not peaceful delegation. His way to deal with problems is, I'm stronger than you. I will destroy your towers. I will burn your cities. I will kill all your leaders. We see that that scar or that leadership is carried on in in Jephthah, who really follows Abimelech's leadership. and So you kind of see this unraveling of the people of Israel. And so if you if you take that step back, you recognize that the author of Judges doesn't tell us who's in the right or who's in the wrong between Jephthah and Ephraim, because it, it's such a petty squabble that it doesn't actually matter who's in the right and who's in the wrong. It's not like idolatry is at stake here. It's not like there's w- wicked adultery in the nation. It's not that they had a problem with Jephthah sacrificing his daughter. You'll notice, remember, that series of events happens. No Israelites take issue with it. No one has a problem with that going down. No one even really raises a concern against it. It kind of just inevitably happens. And here, when it comes to essentially a pride dispute between Ephraim and Jephthah, you'll notice that they're going to go to arms over this thing. And so you recognize almost the pettiness, the the fracturing of priority, and that causes great bloodshed. And you notice that there's no even hint of diplomacy here, right? Ephraim goes against him and says, essentially they make the accusation and then before he even responds, they say at the end of verse one, we will burn your house over you with fire. <laughs> so they're not looking to settle this in any other way than bloodshed. And, they, and they've proven that because they have their army ready to go. And Jephthah doesn't even try to resolve this peacefully as he did with the Ammonite king, right? He doesn't try to resolve it. He doesn't make a defense for it. He just says, you're wrong. And then they fight. And that's how these events unfold. And so the author of Judges is telling us something about what's happened to the people of Israel, how broken they've become, how essentially disintegrated they are from their previous uh, glory. And this can be seen as early as, you know, Joshua 22, where the people have finished their campaign into the land, and they're, the eastern tribes are going back over the, the fords of the Jordan, and there's a few tribes that go and they build that uh, little tower, and then the other ten tribes go up against them and they say, you've committed gross idolatry in, in this, uh, at this point, we're going to go to war against you and they settle it diplomatically and they realize that what was at stake was idolatry so the battle if it was to ensue would have been a good battle and they resolve it by saying oh no idolatry has been committed we have peace and they kind of go their separate ways and at this point kind of the same conflict the gileadites which is for one of those eastern tribes is now up against the people of ephraim which were one of the tribes that lives in the promised land and they're squaring off there's no concern for idolatry there's no concern whether God's name has been violated. There's no concern about God's glory or the Ammonites. This is purely a pride dispute. And that uh, plays out in, in very wicked terms, right? Jephthah is, is no stranger to military conflict. He's not a diplomat. He is a warrior and he's going to play to his strengths. And so when he does that, you'll notice he in, in swift order defeats the Ephraimite uh, tribe. This is the same way that he tells us they defeat the Ammonites, right? It's like one sentence and the Ammonites were defeated that day. And the same thing here in verse four, it says that then Jephthah gathers all the men of Gilead. He fought with Ephraim and the men of Gilead struck Ephraim. (laughs) And that's it. That's the the way their uh, loss is summarized, right? So Gilead defeats Ephraim. There's not a big drawn out battle. It's almost uh, a quick, swift victory. And that's impressive considering the scale of this fight. You'll notice down at the bottom in verse six, it's 42,000 people who end up dying as a result of this conflict, both in the battle and in the subsequent cleanup, if you will. And so that's a lot of people to go down. So it's, it's strange that there's not more drama unfolding, but that, uh, that disunity that's portrayed on the front end is then backed up or, uh, even uh, underscored by this really interesting, uh, set of events that happens starting in verse five down to verse six, which is this, uh, this essentially sifting process that they put in play, this discernment that they put in. So in a reversal or in a kind of judgment on Ephraim, you'll notice that in this case, instead of Ephraim capturing the fords of the Jordan, which happens in Judges seven when they assist Gideon, now Gilead captures the fords of the Jordan and they use it against Ephraim. So previously remember Ephraim goes, captures that river and they're the ones who end up kind of cleaning up the mess as the battle goes on. They don't let people cross back over. And in this case, when they're trying to cross back over because they need out, Gilead is the one who controls the banks. And so they're able to stop them from getting any further, essentially retreating back into their territory. And so uh, what happens for Ephraim is they're essentially, they have to sneak past and they're all Israelites. So ethnically, they look the same. They have the same eye color, same skin, you know, there's nothing to tell them apart from a, from a physical standpoint, right? But there is something that can tell them apart. And in this case, it's, it's accent, it's, uh, it's dialect, if you will. And in the same way that you can tell uh, two different Caucasian people apart, uh, one from Britain and one from uh, the United States, possibly by asking them to say a phrase or to refer to a term. And based on their accent or their inflection or how they pronounce their vowels, they're gonna give themselves away. Same thing here. And so in this case, two groups of people that look roughly the same, they're, they're finding very minute ways to distinguish between who's in the in group and who's in the out group. And they become resourceful. Right now they're down to one syllable. You'll notice the difference between shibboleth and sibboleth is that sh sound, that's it. And so Israel has proved to be very resourceful when they want to be in terms of discerning who's in and who's out. You'll notice that same kind of discernment doesn't take play when it comes to idolatry. That same kind of discernment doesn't take place uh, when it comes to um, honoring God or right worship or right practice. This kind of discernment takes place, they, they can be resourceful in this way when it comes to their own pride and their own egos. And that's an interesting development in Israel. Because previously they're supposed to have been this discerning for the right things, and they're misprioritizing what is and what isn't right. And so as this unfolds, uh, inevitably what happens as the Ephraimites try to cross over, they make it into uh, essentially this checkpoint, they try to cross that checkpoint, they fail the test, they can't say it, and then they're slaughtered. And this happens for all the Ephraimites, they fall or they're stranded on the other side and they never make it back across. And that's how this kind of story of this narrative ends. And that's the last thing we hear about Jephthah right? It's almost a footnote then. Uh, He judges Israel for six years and then Jephthah the Gilead dies and is buried in Gilead. And you notice again, there's no rest to his rule. There's no um, really deliverance in his judgment. It just kind of seems like more and more conflict is stirred up, not really any peace or lasting peace being achieved. And that's uh, a strange development because earlier in Judges, when the judges are anointed and when they deliver the people, they actually rescue them and deliver them to peace. They rescue them from an enemy and they, and they rescue them to an established peace an abiding rule. Um, And in this case, Jephthah rescues them, but really to no kind of peace in the same way that Abimelech, when he's judged, there's not really any peace. It's kind of more and more internal conflict. And so it's this kind of disintegration that happens in the people of Israel. And we, and there's a bunch of ways we can, we can think about this story, right? The question I said earlier is, um, why is this included? And another way we could ask this is, uh, what lesson does it teach us, right? In, in the Old Testament, we're, we'll, we're told that the scriptures here are for our profit, they're for our benefit. Um, and so this text has something for us, and the question is, what is that? And there's a bunch of different angles we can, we can look at. Uh, the, one of them is just to reflect on what happens in Israel and how does that inform us about our practice and our, um, our faithfulness towards God? And we can be very much like Israel, we can follow their example, both negatively and positively, right? In this case, a very negative example, right? A very tragic kind of victory. And we realize that not all victories are actually happy victories, right? We also recognize that not all disunity is good disunity. There are some kinds of disunity that are good, some kinds of disunity that are necessary. Paul talks about doctrinal disunity in the New Testament, that's a good reason to break fellowship with someone, right? But there's also disunity that's wrong, uh, disunity, for example, for selfish pride, or as he says, some, peach, some preach Christ out of uh, vain conceit and, and selfish pride, and they're driving u- disunity in the people of Israel for no reason other than their egos, and so by reflecting, we can see how Israel goes wrong in their breaking of fellowship and how we can learn or we can reflect on that example, and it, it kind of exhorts us in a negative way to not do that same kind of thing. We can look at this and say that it causes us to long for more in a judge, right? This is kind of a constant motif in judges that how Jephthah doesn't give abiding rest, doesn't give abiding peace, his leadership doesn't establish any kind of rest. Uh, We we recognize that in the New Testament, we we have a judge that can do that. And so as we read this story, it causes us almost to long and, and to lurch for a judge who can establish a peace that is better and who can establish a unity that is lasting and a unity that won't disintegrate, right? As good as Moses was, as good as Joshua is, their peace eventually breaks apart. As good as David and Solomon's rest is, eventually David and Solomon die and that rest kind of goes back into chaos. It's only with Christ that you see uh, a promise that unity will be established and in his high priestly prayer, he even prays to the Father and says, uh, make them one so that the whole world will know that you sent me and that they are one as you and I are one. And so it's, a, it's almost like a promise and an exhortation to God's people to be unified in the right way. It's an echo of, uh, of judgment even, right? We see that there's a sifting happening uh, at the fords of the Jordan, and there's no escape. If, you are, if you're of the wrong uh, creed or you're of the wrong, essentially, tribe, there's no faking your way through that judgment. And so it, it almost dimly echoes of a judgment. It's an imperfect judgment because it's a wrong kind of standard that is being sifted. It's effective. Um, But it it echoes a future judgment because there is one day a judgment for all of us that will be actually good, just judgment. And for us as God's people, we have to ask, well, what is the thing that's going to get us (laughs) get get us into uh, everlasting life fellowship with God forever? Uh, Is it some arbitrary, strange standard that we have no control over? Is it uh, what is the thing that's going to get us across? Right. It's a is it a good judgment? Is it a fair judgment? And if so, what is the means by which we we cross over? And so it kind of dimly echoes of that. And then really, lastly, I think the, the big motif of the whole book of Judges um, is this longing or hoping for God to actually be in control. Because when you see a human leader, as good as Jephthah is, as celebrated as he is, as, as you see the people of Israel, the tribe of Ephraim, all of the people of Israel, as you see how, um, how broken they've become, even in a matter of a couple of decades, a couple hundred years, you recognize that hoping in people, hoping in them being faithful to God is not really a good foundation for hope. Hoping in them being pure, them being able to maintain the standard, that's not a good way to uh, have, have encouragement or comfort that things are gonna play out the way that God says that they will. But if you serve a sovereign God, you recognize that he's in control and he, he can bring back disunity after the time of Joshua and lead the people of Israel into David's peace. And after David's peace disintegrates, he can lead the people back into an everlasting peace. And we have hope in a, in a better judge who can actually do that. That's because he's in control, even in all of this chaos when uh, the Gileadites are uh, beating Ephraim and Ephraim is um, being broken down and slaughtered, we recognize that as broken as that situation is, somehow, even beyond our understanding, God is sovereignly working and, and superintending these events so that his people will be preserved, so that his, uh, his gospel will actually save, so that his son will come forth into the earth. And that's a comfort that we reflect on constantly in scripture, that as, as broken and, and as uh, bleak as things seem, God is nevertheless able to uh, work all things together for the good uh, of his people. And uh, we can reflect on that even and uh, be encouraged, uh, even in this kind of dim episode in Israel's uh, history. So uh, let's conclude with a prayer and then we can get to some discussion. Father, I thank you for this time together in your word, for how good you are to us and how uh, gentle you are to encourage us and to uh, rebuke us uh, softly with your uh, examples of old. Um, Lord, would we learn from Israel's mistakes? Um, Would we uh, be reminded of you being the the better judge, the more uh, just judge? And would we be reminded as a people that uh, you are in control and that no matter how strange things seem and how hopeless they seem to become, uh, we would be encouraged to know that you are sovereignly orchestrating all things um, despite our understanding, despite our uh, own weakness um, that you are in control and uh, we can rest and take comfort in that. We'll repair all these things in your name. Amen.